Hello and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. I am joined once again by the wonderful, beautiful co-host, Amy Hollenkamp here. I'm getting my sides mixed up. Amy Hollenkamp, RD, what is up? Hello, not too much. Just living my best life. That's right. That Mm. is right. Spring is here. Spring has sprung and we're bringing you more jam-packed, goodness-filled episodes on the IBS Freedom Podcast And uh, since this one was your brainchild, would you like to introduce and give us a little bit of something to go off of for this topic? The the long versus short, short versus long? What the heck are we talking about? So this is something that came up recently in a conversation with a client. Um, And really, we're being a little mysterious, I think, in the title of this episode. But... (laughs) We're talking, we're wanting, or I wanted to do an episode where we talk a little bit about how you're approaching your gut journey from a bit of a mindset standpoint, but we're also going to talk about interventions. Um, But thinking of it as a long-term strategy versus a short-term strategy. So this client I talked to, actually yesterday, we were talking about how she's noticed a shift in her mindset that's been really helpful where she felt that she was urgently chasing this microbiome issue. Like she had to figure out how to clear out. uh, She almost, she referred to it sometimes as an infection or she had to clear out this imbalance that's going on or the SIBO that's going on, or she she had some uh, candida going on as well. So like, she wanted to clear out some of the the dysbiosis that was going on, but she had been doing this for a long period of time, and she felt that some of it was helpful. Um, but during this call with her more recently, she was saying it's been really helpful to sort of take a step back and see that there's so many levers that could help her microbiome um, that were not specific towards manipulating the microbiome. They're more indirect, indirectly helping her gut and the microbiome. Um, But it's also in a weird way helped her reduce some of the urgency. She's seeing that this is going to be a process and it's taken a bit of the pressure off um, for her. And it's been really helpful just how, how she's conceptualizing her journey and it's helping her again, not feel like she's having to slam her foot on the the gas at all times. Um, So it was just really interesting talking to her about it because I feel like there was a very similar period in my journey where I felt like everything was very urgent. I had to do this to help with the microbiome and I wasn't going to feel better until this was better. But a lot of the strategies I was taking in that urgent, more desperate state were very short term. They were trying to get me better right here, right now, versus actually thinking of strategies that would help me get better in six months so or three months or would set me up for success more long term. So I think from a mindset standpoint, the things I want to talk about today are just noticing if you're getting more in a short, short-term mindset, 
usually I do think there's more of a desperate energy. Sometimes you're narrowly focusing in on one aspect of your journey versus seeing all the aspects of your journey. And um, a lot of times fundamentals are missed too. If you're focusing on more quick fixy short-term solutions versus long-term solutions that are typically going to be more habits driven and take time to see the benefits. So, and it's not to say that some short-term solutions are bad because they can certainly be helpful at times to have it's some things sprinkled in though. Right. Right. But yeah, short-term I, I, stuff can't be the foundation. It, exactly. So yeah, I, I, I just wanted to open up a discussion around that topic of short and long-term goals. And um, I think to sum up my journey on it, I feel as though that I found way more success when I wasn't hyper-focused on the microbiome and some of the short-term solutions or getting better tomorrow. When I stopped my mindset, when I shifted my mindset from thinking that solutions would come very quickly and instead put less pressure on the finish line. So put less pressure on getting better tomorrow or, or ASAP. Um, instead I would shift my mindset and say, you know what? I'm going to get better. There's different levers to pull on here. What can I pull on that will get me, that will get me to that finish line, but I'm not in a rush to that finish line. Um, so, Again, it's it's a much more of a a a relaxing in a weird way. It feels more relaxed when you take that pressure off the finish line um, with like wanting short term, right here, right now solutions. If you take your foot off the gas a little bit and can see all the variables and start chipping away at different variables. I, that's usually when I see people making more progress. And it was definitely a huge factor for me, that mindset shift. Cause like I said, I, I it took, le- it took pressure off me getting better at a certain time frame, and instead focused on the systems that were going to get me better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd love to talk ab- about this with you in more depth. Cause I, feel that we can have a pretty nuanced conversation about it. Um, Yeah. Well, and I think, I think this is really important, but you know, it's funny. I, I thought of this as you were talking and I've been kind of chuckling internally about it. Uh Oh, okay. Everybody says that they like holistic stuff, right? (laughs) Like I think, I think most of our listeners and the providers and the the like healthcare people that we kind of pal around with, everybody pretty much unanimously would agree that holistic is better. And oh, I can't believe conventional medicine. How dare they break you up into bits and pieces and send you <laughs> off to specialists? And the specialist just hyper focuses on one body part and ignores the rest of the body. Oh, I can't believe how bad of a system this is. Bah you need to do the holistic thing. But then, (laughs) so like, they say that. But then in actuality, if we're basing this off of people's actions, people don't care as much about doing the holistic thing. Mm. If people have 
a gut problem, say bloating or abdominal pain or pooping problems, even the people in the holistic health world, or even people who say that they want to do things holistically, most people are still hyper-focusing on the gut. And then Mm -hmm. you try to make the point, sometimes, I won't say this for all of the people I've worked with, but sometimes I'll find myself trying to make the point of, hey, like stress could be playing a really big role here, or we need to work on the, the eating disorder stuff and getting you eating more, or what about exercise, or what about your crappy sleep? Like I'll try to bring in things that are not directly related to the gut, and Not all the time, but oftentimes people kind of are like, no, 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 no. Like, no, I need gut stuff. Like, what magic probiotic can you prescribe me? Or what magic, you know, thing for my tummy Mm. can you prescribe me? And it's like, stop, please. This, You say you want to do things holistically, Mm. but then it's like anything outside of direct gut support, oftentimes people are either shutting down that conversation or they're at least poo-pooing it a little bit. Pun totally intended, by the way. So, you know, right. but it, if we wanted to, just kind of rapid fire, let's let's throw out a couple of examples. Um, okay, exercise doesn't seem like it's directly related to your microbiome, but it has been shown that exercise increases microbial diversity. So boom, exercise can help. Doesn't feel like it would. Well, and I I think that people underestimate they when they're poo-pooing it in my mindset, it's like they're underestimating the power of of that thing. Um, Or they think a more gut directed thing would be more powerful, which or quicker. Again, and that goes back to the short versus long game. Right. And there could be some gut-directed thing that might quickly reduce symptoms somewhat, but you're going to have a hard time resolving gut issues if there are fundamental things that are out of out of whack for you. Yeah. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that they have to be perfect or that you have to exercise every day of your life or whatever, you know, yeah, no. but there has to be some balance in your approach. And when you're so short sighted and on short term solutions, mm-hmm. you fail typically to have a balanced approach. You know what could be an interesting at home exercise for people right now? Hmm. Pause this episode, go grab not you, Amy, because you're in the episode. So you don't get to pause anything. I was about but to run listeners right now, pause this episode, run and get yourself a pad of paper and a pen or a pencil. These are things that we used to use for writing before we had <laughs> tablets and phones, by the way. Okay, I'm going to pretend that you pause the episode and you're back now. Write down all of the treatment things that you're doing right now. So every Mm -hmm. supplement, every herb, every strategy that you're implementing for the sake of your IBS or your SIBO or your gut health. Write those on one side, say the left-hand side of the page. Then draw a line down the middle of the page. And on the other side, just write down what bodily system or what thing they're trying to address. So you could write down sleep, stress, movement, you know, gut support, hormone support, immune support, nutrition, just overall, like not not gut specific nutrition, just overall nutrition. But I bet for a lot of you, if you took the time to write down all of the things you're doing and all of the things you're taking, and then you looked at that right hand side of the page, 
I bet well over 50% of what you're doing is directly gut focused. Mm. Right. And that's part of the message here is that if you're hyper, hyper focusing on one body system, you might not be seeing the forest for the trees. You might be too laser focused on one body system and you're possibly ignoring other areas of the body or other aspects of your health that could use some TLC. And if you could just take take a pause, back up a little bit, zoom out and evaluate like how much you're laser focused on the gut versus how much other stuff you're bringing into the picture, mm. um, that might give you a little bit of perspective here. Yeah, it's a really good, good idea. I like that idea. I, another thing just to think about, and I see this often with clients. So when I have a follow up call with a client, I'll have them fill out a a form asking them, like, what are the three major things that you've been focusing on? And it is always interesting. Because usually, especially after uh, an initial call, I'll usually lay out different strategies. Um, and again, I'll, I'll separate them by diet, lifestyle, supplemental. Well, you better believe that like every uh, follow-up call, the main stuff I see in there is, oh, I added in the supplement. I, it's always the supplements that I feel like come first. And I'm not trying to pick on any clients or anything. But I supplement strategies are going to be almost always more short term. Now there are some longer term options in there, but usually the goal is not to be on a supplement forever. Supplements could help you initiate long term goals if they like give you more energy or help reduce bloating. So then you can add more diversity in or help with motility. They can help with long term goals, but in and of themselves, they should be more short term solutions. Um, Again, to me, at least, the goal is not to have someone on a bunch of supplements forever so that they can function. Um, But they can be a bridge to initiating strategies that will help your long-term goals. They can be a a bridge to long-term strategies. So, um, But it is something to think about, too, if you're putting so much emphasis on supplements and less on other things that are more lifestyle, I, I typically think diet and lifestyle are going to be more long-term strategies yeah. um, versus supplement strategies. Now there's different nuancey things you could potentially think of lifestyle and diet-wise that could be more short-term. Like if you did a, f- a fast or something, um, I don't know, like there could be some variation in there, but typically lifestyle, like habit changes that are more lifestyle and diet related are going to be more long-time long-term solution focused versus anything supplementals should in my mind be a little bit more short-term or a bridge to long a bridge to long-term solutions i agree i think also probably a, the the middle point i agree so i think probably 80 or 90 percent of supplements that you would take are probably more short-term yeah solutions um With the exception, I think, if you go back to the episodes where we talk about herbs for stress, um, like the Nervines or adaptogens, those sorts of herbs, I think, are best suited for longer term strategies. 
most people aren't going to take milky oat and then the next day be like, wow, I feel so much more resilient. It's going to be more of like months and months in the making. So with the exception of like the stress modulating, adrenal modulating type of stuff, um, I think, you know, antimicrobials, anti-candida stuff, prokinetics, leaky gut healer uppers, probiotics, Mm -hmm. vitamins and minerals, like those are typically things that we would take in hopes that we see a quick turnaround. And sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But I do think herbs and supplements are going to be much more short-term e-strategy versus like you said, lifestyle and habit changes tend to be more long-term strategy focused. I like that you brought up fasting because I think a fast is probably one exception. I think the halfway between mark is going to be nutrition. And it really just depends on how you're approaching nutrition. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a cleanse or a detox, actually here, better yet, if you're doing a diet and it, especially if that diet has a name, that is a short-term strategy. That's, that is short-term. You're well, hoping, it should be short-term. Well, yeah. But people do those because they're hoping it'll make them feel better within a couple of days or a week or a month, right? So it's more instant gratification-y feeling, certainly. Versus if you're working on nutrition, but it's not like a specific diet. It doesn't have a name. You're just focusing on eating enough and maybe getting a little bit more carbs and maybe emphasizing healthy fat or bumping up your protein or, you know, getting more fiber or more colors. Like if you're doing stuff like that, if you're doing nutrition that you might learn about in a like nutrition 101 lecture almost then I think that's more long-term focus. But again, if you're doing a diet, and if that, especially if that diet has a name or if it has like a medical treatment in mind, that is definitely more of a short-term strategy kind of thing. And again, it's not to say short-term is bad, but they should be used for only short-term relief, maybe a month or two for a lot of these diets. And number two, um, Again, the number of short-term things that you're doing or these short game items that you're implementing, they just shouldn't make up the majority or the foundation of your treatment plan. Yeah, it's a really, I I like how you separated those two. In terms of optimizing nutrition as a whole, I believe is what you're describing, where it's how do I eat in a way that makes me thrive? Eating to be a healthy human on the one side versus eating for SIBO or eating for right. candida. And, like, I, and I think from a long-term standpoint, that could change over time too. So there is, it's a, I think nutrition in general is a bit of a journey across the lifespan. I mean, me currently, the way I'm eating is totally different than I typically eat when I'm not lactating. So there is maybe going to be some nuance over time and some adjustments that happen over time. But to me, the goal of nutrition is trying to find, um, trying to ensure that you're getting enough micronutrition and finding a macronutrition um, balance that feels good to you. Because everyone's going to have some slight 
differences and maybe you need a little bit more protein than the average person that feels best to you. Maybe you need a little bit more carbs, but it takes experimenting on a consistent basis to figure that out. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but usually when you do start dabbling with nutrition, you start getting a sense of, I feel really good when I eat this particular meal and then this balance of macros, how can I utilize that a little bit more? I do think that there's general trends I see. So when I work with clients, sometimes I'll say, oh, you know, probably 95% of people wouldn't feel as good eating this amount of carbs consistently. Let's adjust that and see how you do. And then once we get to that point, we might need to make additional adjustments. Maybe we try upping the carbs a bit more, see if that continues to to make them feel better. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe we just drop down a little bit more. Um, so it is it is a process that takes a little bit of time to, to sort out. And the last point in terms of the diets that have a name, that have something they're trying to solve, this is at the core of some mindset issues that come with short-term thinking in my mind is that I don't think supplements in and of themselves can usually solve the problem or, you know, diets in and of themselves, a SIBO diet is going to solve the SIBO, but that's the promise a lot of times is these supplements in and of themselves will solve all the gut issues. This is the cure. Right. If you just do this or take this. Right. And that's, I think people have a come to Jesus moment when they realize that that promise isn't going to happen in that mindset switch, at least for me was like a flip of a switch and it actually helped me in a lot of ways because I realized no amount of restrictive diets really going to solve the problem. No amount of me throwing supplements at this thing is going to solve the problem. If I'm majorly stressed and nutrient depleted and all these other things that were going on in my scenario. So I believe at the crux of this issue is feeling like you can solve the problem completely with supplement, like with some short-term interventions. And it just isn't a promise that will come to fruition. And then you're just frustrated and, um, most of my clients get to a breaking point and that's usually when they find us or they want to try something different. Um, but yeah, that to me is the crux of the issue is this promise that will never be fulfilled. Yeah. Or at least it, it won't ever be fulfilled for, I think the majority of people, right. There probably are those freak people, right? Yeah, the people like, that took Rifaxman one time and then they're Exactly, good. but yeah. those are not the people who are listening to our podcast. Right, right. <laughs> they have no reason to listen to our podcast because, again, those weirdo people, they <laughs> they took Rifaxman once and they're just frolicking off into the sunset and they're totally cured and they're good. So I think that in a weird way, listening to our podcast right now is a symptom that tips you off that you're probably in this camp that we're describing where you know, no amount of dietary restriction is going to solve the problem or cure you. No amount of supplements is going to directly cure you or solve the problem. There's got to be some other stuff too. And again, like I think also 
no amount of pure, unadulterated, gut-focused work is going to cure you. If yeah. you if you feel like you've gotten to a point where you've tried all of the gut supplements, you probably have. And that's exactly the problem. <laughs> right. right? Right? Like, like, oh, I've tried glutamine. I've tried probiotics of multiple varieties. I've tried spore probiotics. I've tried prokinetics. I've tried bitters and digestive enzymes and HCL and bile and, and this candida supplement and 15 different antimicrobials. And oh my God. And, and again, it's, it's like at some point you have to step back and go, oh, <laughs> but all of that stuff is focused on basically one thing, one body part, the GI mm. tract. Maybe I just need to like put this on a shelf somewhere right? and walk away and I've seen I've seen people get better from quote unquote SIBO or IBS or or some gut problem when we do absolutely nothing for the gut, right? Nothing. Right. Like we work on other stuff. We work on sleep and stress and hormones and nutrition just overall, and then their gut miraculously gets better. Right. So, I've seen, like you said, I've seen people take an iron supplement and all their symptoms go away and like gnarly stuff that I was not mm-hmm. anticipating happening. I have a student right now in FODMAP Freedom that she is sleeping legitimately well for the first time in her life. Right. And she's like, I'm pooping every single day. Yeah. Every day. And she had constipation coming into the class and just kind of acknowledging that you need to prioritize sleep and like giving her some of the tools to prioritize sleep between that and like, chewing her food more and doing more mindful eating stuff. She's pooping every single day and she's feeling a lot better already. Now she still has a ways to go to broaden out her diet. Right. But she's already making really great progress. And one of the big things for her was sleep. Right. And again, you might be tempted to think that the sleep is completely separate from your gut, but I guarantee you it's not. There's (laughs) wild research on what they call the microbial clock. And Basically, the microbes have a circadian rhythm, and they get all of their cues from us and our behavior and our eating and our circadian rhythm. Right. So, you know, again, everything is connected. I think the eyelashes on your left eyeball are connected to the toenail on your right toe. Right. I don't know how, but they're all connected in some way. And again, like, if we really value the holistic thing and we want to treat things holistically, we need to... I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to articulate here. I guess we can't just say that. We can't right. just feign interest in doing things holistically. We actually need to put our money where our mouth is and take the time and take the effort to do the things that feel like they're not at all related to the gut. I promise all of them are related to your gut. It's just you might not fully understand how or why that works. Right. Um but it's, that's kind of part of trusting the process, trusting your body and its ability to heal in some weird way, trusting us and, you know, just trusting that we wouldn't give you a bum steer. Right. In that, I don't know, like there's a lot of trust that folds into this too. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many examples I could give uh, with clients, uh, maybe underestimating certain things and then trying and being like, whoa, this was way more powerful than I thought. It also makes me chuckle a little bit thinking about the people that went on Rifaxman and immediately fell better and had no long-term issues. I, I wonder if those people might have better foundational 
skills too. Possibly. Maybe they took a PPI or something and that just threw things off and they're off the PPI and took her faxman and it sort of resolved the issue. Something like that. But their stress is pretty good. Their lifestyle is pretty good. They eat pretty uh, nutrient-dense foods and then they move on. And then there could be people that are just total anomalies that have crap lifestyle and diet and take her faxman and feel feel amazing and move on too. But it, it does make me wonder the people that do seem to have a lot of symptom resolution post just a single intervention of something makes me wonder if they have more, a more solid foundation compared to some people that don't necessarily get that uh, effect. I bet that that's probably largely true. Again, to your point, there's probably the weirdos out there who are eating Big Macs every single meal. Right. right. And, you know, it's just they have like this weird resiliency that's superhuman. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that probably that's largely true. Um, I think that the one health condition that threw that on its side, and we haven't fully figured it out yet is COVID. Yeah. Right. Like we've, we've all heard the stories, right. Where somebody was really unhealthy, like smoker, obese, diabetic, (laughs) eating terrible, terrible food, never moving their body and they get COVID and it's like two sniffles, one booger. And then they move on with their life and they're like, Oh, that COVID was no big deal. And then you have the people who have like run marathons and they eat kale every day maybe a little orthorexic if you're eating kale every day. But you know what I mean? Like the people who are super healthy and then they get COVID and it absolutely destroys them. So COVID is the wild card in this where maybe your baseline health and your baseline foundations, that may or may not play directly into it as much. But I think for most other health conditions, what you're describing is true. I think that if you have the solid foundations and the nutrition, the stress management, the movement, the sleep, the relationships, you get outside, you know, if, you, if you're if you laying the foundation with all of that stuff, and then you have something happen, it's just like a little blip on the radar, and then your body has that resiliency to steer the ship and right the ship again, versus if you're already unhealthy, or if you're already inflamed, or super, super stressed, or if your sleep is shit, and then something happens, then it's just like, you know, it, that one thing throws you into a dumpster and lights it on fire. And then you're left with this dumpster fire for years and years and years to come potentially. Yeah. And it, it brings me a bit to another point, which is, you know, if you are listening to this and saying, oh yeah, I'm definitely more focusing on some short-term solutions, expecting long-term results, because that's really, again, the promise. And you've been frustrated and you might feel like you're operating in more of a desperate, urgent manner. In terms of how to get out of that mindset, I think it's helpful just to try to conceptualize like a willingness or just accepting where you're at in the journey. You know, you might not be where you want to be, Um, especially if you're listening to this podcast, I'd imagine a lot of people are not necessarily where they want to be gut wise. And I'm a big believer that, you know, you can get where you want to be. It's just maybe taking a step back and thinking about, 
um, how you can move forward or what you can do now that might help you six months from now. That's really a, the question I might continue to, to focus in on is what little things can you incorporate into your lifestyle on a week to week basis, or maybe even a month to month basis if it's like a massage or something, because rarely are people going to get a massage like once a week. But, you know, there could be strategies you work in like once a month or something like that, um, or making sure you're doing um, something all day with friends once a month. I don't know what it is, but you could work stuff in monthly, but trying to think of some concrete strategies that you can incorporate in on a weekly basis or a daily basis, whatever it is to set you up for success. Um, in really trying to solidify some of the foundational pieces. Um, and again, just asking yourself some questions of, you know, it's okay. I'm not where I want to be. Um, but I'm kind of accepting where I'm at and I don't need to be rushing to the finish line. I will get there. Um, it would be nice to be better yesterday, but you know, obviously that's the obvious thing right. in this whole episode. We should have led with that. We want you to be better ASAP. Right. We don't right. want you to suffer for any longer than you have to. But um, again, it's, it's, I, I think one of the things we're trying to focus on is that when you're rushing to the finish line, you're not going to notice a lot of the stuff that you could be working on. Again, you've got kind of blinders on and you're just, you're frantically trying to get there as soon as possible and there could be an answer right next to you here and you have no idea it's there because you've got a blinder on and right. you can't see. But if you take a second to slow down and look around and kind of take your time with the process a little bit more, you might see a really obvious answer or a really huge thing that might help you profoundly. Like again, like sleep, you might finally be able to see that if you slow down a little bit and if you if you kind of tone back that that frantic kind of energy. And there's one thing I just want to point out briefly. And then I had, I have an analogy or, um, to share from the brain of Nikki yet again, all of these like weird ways of looking at things. Um, a, I, I think that we need to point out the parallels with some of what we've talked about regarding health anxiety and health OCD. And I, again, like this, like desperate frantic energy, um, sometimes if, if you're having a really hard time stepping back and zooming out and doing things that are not directly related to your chief complaint, if you're finding that that's a really big struggle for you, or it feels just like really dangerous to do that, right? If mm -hmm. you're listening to us right now and you're like, they're crazy people, this is dangerous. If I don't treat the candida right now, it's going to infect my eyeballs or something. I don't know. Um, if you're having that kind of sensation, like, mm. like this conversation almost is scary to you, or it feels dangerous to you, then I think exploring health OCD, or at the bare minimum health anxiety would be worthwhile. Um, I'll let Can you weigh in on that. And then I want to share this like different way of, of thinking of things that I, it, it you'll see, you'll see, I, I'll, Weigh in on the health OCD anxiety <laughs> comment first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, looking back on my journey, I definitely had that. And it does create much a much higher degree of anxiety around the urgency or 
like you said, it feels irresponsible to not address an outright candida issue right here, right now. It feels irresponsible. Um, and or if you, like, if you get stuck there, like you said, I, I, I think it also can be helpful to look at how big or small your world's gotten since you've been in the gut health space for people that have anxiety and OCD or health anxiety or health OCD along this journey, like I did, my world got very tiny. And so if you feel like everything's revolving around your gut journey, and that's not to take away that you might have some debilitating symptoms that make it a little bit harder to engage. But even some of the more severe cases that I've worked with can still engage somewhat in with their family, with their friends, with their lifestyle that they want to lead. Sometimes the health OCD, health anxiety, and how wrapped up you are in the journey can take you too much out of that. So if you feel like your world's very small, I might also look into health OCD, anxiety, um, or work with a therapist. Um, it, it could be, even if you are having the, that much symptomology, working with a therapist might be helpful just to help you manage how hard this is on your life, managing a chronic condition that's that symptom symptom producing. But I, more often than not, I think health OCD and anxiety can make the issue much bigger mm-hmm. and scarier and pull your attention and, and make you latch into it, hook into it more. Um, and you're right, that can be really challenging. That can be a challenging hurdle to to jump over if that's going on. Um, make it much harder to, to focus on long-term strategies because the short-term strategies feel so urgent and so dangerous that it makes it more challenging to even consider doing other things. Well, and I think you worded it well. It feels... If you had sepsis, right, let's just pick something really overt, really life-threatening in your face, holy crap, right? If you had sepsis, it would be genuinely irresponsible and genuinely dangerous to not treat it right away Mm because it could kill you, right? Right. Similarly, you know, if if you had, were in some freak accident and your left arm was lobbed off at the shoulder and it was squirting out blood, like I'm talking like Monty <laughs> Python style, squirting blood out, you wouldn't be the person who's like, oh, but let me just like finish prepping for dinner and right. then I'll go to the hospital. Right. You would want to get that treated immediately because it could be very dangerous at, or life-threatening if you don't treat it immediately. And I'm not... I'm not trying to insinuate at all that the symptoms you're dealing with don't suck very, very badly. I mm. know they can. Right. Um, but the reality is the stuff that you're dealing with, if you're listening to this episode, it's not immediately life threatening. It's not truly urgent. I know that you want to feel better right away and we want that for you. But that's the thing is like, I think sometimes people do have this energy of, oh my God, like this, this is my entire life and I have to feel better right away. And oh my God. And it's, it's like dangerous if I don't treat the SIBO, it's dangerous if I don't treat the candida. 
And you know, honestly, again, I'm going to throw my profession under the bus. I think that I blame the internet in general, and I blame the damn functional medicine and naturopathic community, because there's also a lot of really blatant, intentional fear mongering that Mm. has led you to believe that. Like, not a lot of people would feel as freaked out by candida if it weren't for the horde of (laughs) candida diet books and candida (laughs) protocol books and the the influencers who focus on candida and the functional medicine people and the people selling you oat tests and selling you the interpretation of the tests and selling you the supplements and the pills and the potions. And the same thing goes for SIBO. The same thing goes for whatever else. So just keep that in mind too, is that unfortunate, you know how the saying is that sex sells. Yeah. I, I think that that's true in a lot of industries, but in the healthcare industry, fear sells. Oh yeah. And if, if again, if influencers or if doctors or if healthcare professionals or health coaches, if they can make you fear something, they're going to get more money out of you. And they know that. And yeah. that is an intentional marketing strategy on the part of some people. So, well, in a couple things to note too. So the fear drives you for an urgent solution. But like we've been saying, these short term solutions, a lot of them are empty promises. Or again, not the full promise that you're just going to immediately be better and you can frolic off into the sunset half the time. That's sort of the promise of, oh, if you just take Rifaxman, you'll be fine. Or if you just take these herbals, you're going to be good to go. Right. That is an empty promise. And so sometimes releasing the idea that there is a quick fix or something that's just going to immediately get you better, releasing that idea... If something was like that, that's amazing. If you are that random person that took Rifaxman, that'd be amazing. But that's the exception, not the rule. So typically with my clients, just being able to say like, even if you are in an urgent state and there is something that you could go to, it's probably not going to be what you think it's going to be. So, and then about the fear So something that's interesting, the more I've like learned about OCD on my journey with postpartum OCD is there's, um, uh, her account's called the anxiety paradox. And she talks about this a lot, but fear doesn't equal danger. So that's one thing that's super helpful for me. Um, just thinking about her account right now while you talk conceptualizing things, but Fear doesn't equal danger, but it, it feels dangerous. If you, if you, fear is a feeling, but a feeling isn't really dangerous. And it, you can think about it too, in the terms of food, like expanding the diet feels so dangerous, but is really, is broccoli danger, like dangerous? No, you could have a reaction to it, but I would argue it's not dangerous to try foods. But when you have intense food fear or anxiety around foods or OCD around foods um, or orthorexia or whatever you want to call it, if you have some some really intense fear around foods, foods feel, feel very dangerous. Um, that doesn't mean they are. We don't know how you're going to respond to foods if you've cut them out for a while. Um, you might need to build up some tolerance to food to foods, but foods aren't dangerous, but I've been in the mentality where foods I've saw food as danger because I had so much fear around it. Um, but you can have fears, um, in, in your safe. 
Like you can have all these intense fears. You can have fears that you're never going to get better from SIBO, but in this current moment, you're safe. So it's, it's, it's strange. Fear does weird stuff. Um, and can, can really distort how you're thinking about things um, and raise the urgency of things and just being able to step back and say, well, I feel fear, but in this current moment, like I'm safe or, you know, foods feel really, um, dangerous, but are they? So being able to take a step back when you're acting in a fearful sense or you're feeling a lot of fear around something, um, I almost think being able to take a step back when those feelings are rushing through you, it's very hard because a lot of your executive functioning goes out the window when you are in a fearful state, but it takes practice, but it has been something that's been really helpful for me when I'm in a state of like a high degree of fear, even panic is just acknowledging, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling afraid or scared but that's okay. Um, I can go and do what I need to do being scared or afraid. Um, same thing again, someone could add a new food in that they're scared of. Um, if they're afraid of that food, bring that fear that scared, being a little bit scared with you. Um, but try to push through it and, um, you know, not view foods as dangerous. Um, and it's not to say like you could have a reaction to food, but you know, unless you're like an outright celiac or something. I was actually going to use that as an example, though, like, because I am a celiac. And even for me, is wheat immediately life threatening for me? No, I will poop a lot, right? like a lot, a lot. And it will be unpleasant. <laughs> right. And I know I do understand the long-term effects of unmanaged celiac disease. So I'm not saying that I eat gluten intentionally, but really in the strictest sense, gluten is not immediately dangerous in the sense, again, like the sense of urgency and the sense of danger, like my life is threatened in this moment. It really isn't. Um, I would say Mm -hmm. the one exception to the food thing in this context is anaphylactic food allergies. Mm -hmm. If you have an anaphylactic allergy to a peanut, then peanuts could be genuinely dangerous to you because if you accidentally ingest one and if you don't have like an EpiPen or Benadryl or whatever handy, or if you're in a place where you can't get immediate medical care, that peanut could kill you legitimately. Again, if I, if I get exposed to gluten on a hike through the Andes and well, I, where are you planning I, a vacation that I don't, I don't know, know about? <laughs> but you know, like just somewhere remote away from normal, you know, right. normal supplements and Pepto-Bismol and medical care and toilets and whatnot. <laughs> like if I was just out in, in the middle of nowhere and I got exposed to wheat, I would be alive. Like I right. would survive. I just, I would have to stop for frequent pooping trips <laughs> for the rest of the hike. Um, Right. The the experience wouldn't be fun, but what happens in someone's mind that's anxious or OCD, the, the potential for symptoms or like becomes so much bigger and more scary because there's a hyper-focus on avoiding symptoms. So that's where it gets a little squirrely. Um, 
I was just talking to someone and, and I actually feel like this person isn't necessarily anxious. Uh, but she's someone that gets diarrhea and she's been doing a lot better, but she had a bit of a flare up cause she had, um, eaten a meal and looking back, she thinks she just rushed off to an appointment. She ate really quickly, rushed off to an appointment, um, to get her hair cut or something. And, um, she had, uh, you know, some urgency and it was like scary. Cause it was like, Oh my gosh, there's no bathroom or not really scary, but just there's a level of like, Oh my gosh, what if I don't make it to the bathroom? It was not a fun experience. Um, now, was it dangerous? No. Like, could have there have been some embarrassment or something like that if she Absolutely. didn't make it to the bathroom? Yes. Um, but luckily, she was able to to make it back to her place. But it was like a walk. It was a walk. There weren't any public bathrooms. So, but in someone with anxiety's head, that that does seem dangerous there's some sort of um i don't even know how to describe it but i think you know i, I do can i interrupt okay. you yeah um remember way back when like towards the beginning of season one one of our very first guests was julia king yeah and we talked a bit about i i think she she talked about it in the context of like a zebra and a lion but this idea that our nervous systems interpret perceived danger in a very similar way, whether we are perceiving danger mm-hmm. from shitting our pants in public, which would be right. mortifying. Right. Right. Um, or trying a new food and not knowing what will happen versus right. you are a zebra on the Serengeti and there's a lion actively hunting you right now and you could immediately die all of that's kind of the same from the nervous system's point of view you get the same stress response and stress chemistry and the cortisol and the adrenaline and the heart rate and everything's kind of the same and and again like you mentioned before the executive functioning part of your nervous system the frontal lobe the part that makes all the smarty pants decisions and has like complex thought and critical thinking, like this part of the brain that's in charge of all that smarty pants stuff just shuts down. And the rest of your nervous system, the lizard brain takes over when you're in that threatened state. And that's where we can make frantic, not so so good decisions when we're scared. Because again, like to us, it's like we're being chased by a lion out on the Serengeti. Yeah. And our nervous system is losing perspective and losing the ability to differentiate between, again, something that would be absolutely mortifying, right. but not kill you versus something that could very well kill you. Right. Well, and it, it, it reminds me too of um, Jenna Overball when she was on, she said something along the lines of when you have OCD, you can't tell the difference between a garden hose and a snake similar to that like you can misinterpret signals or thoughts or um things again as being more dangerous than they are but yeah i think when you have anxiety or uh ocd you also ruminate about things which again makes them bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier and scarier so 
Yeah, I mean, I think the fe- the underlying fear a lot for people that have SIBO is that if they eat a certain food, the SIBO is going to be back, and then their life's like the underlying fear there you is fed that it. right that the C- you're, they're just going to have never ending SIBO and never beat the SIBO. But in reality, that isn't the case. Um, so again, you're there a is bit a f- more bloated or gassy, right. or you have weird poops for like a day, right? And then you can just pick up where you left off. After yeah. that symptom resides. So yeah, resolved. I think there's a there's an exercise in the I think the the anxiety space and the OCD space. I don't know who coined this, but it's like, um, uh, you know, think about the best case scenario that could happen, the probable scenario that could happen, and the worst case scenario. So like for a lot of people, the worst case scenario of adding a food in is that their SIBO comes back and they never get better. I think the most probable thing, if you added a food in that you hadn't had in a while, maybe you get a little bloated and have a little gas or something. The best case scenario is that you would feel really good eating it and have no issues. So you can, all those options could happen, but I think someone with the anxiety OCD side overemphasize the worst case scenario and don't even think about like the probable or best case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's a good point. Um, it's almost, uh, this is going to get a little bit more woo than I'm capable of speaking to, but <laughs> I can't wait for this. Um, <laughs> I have, I have some dear friends who are much more woo than me. Um, and I think, is this what people talk about when they talk about quantum physics? Like the idea that there are multiple planes of reality all happening at once. And I I kind of picture, you know, we're here in this moment and we can basically choose like which, which version of reality we proceed towards with every moment, every step, every decision of our lives. We're choosing between an infinite number of realities. I think that this is like the quantum physics world, if I remember right. I don't know. I need to look up Joe Dispenza's stuff or something. I I feel like it's funny because I almost think it's just accepting that all three could could happen. Yeah, they all already exist. Right. uh, That's what I'm kind of trying to get at. All three could happen. Um, You know, in reality, you feeding the SIBO or something again, we, there's no evidence to suggest that anyway, but if we're feeding into, to the, to the scenarios that I laid out in reality, you having like an insane reaction to something that you can't come back from is so the percentage that that could happen is so small, but again, in the anxiety OCD space, it feels equal to the other options. And so it feels so much more probable, even though it's unlikely. And so, yeah, it's, it's being able to accept that that could happen. It probably won't. And, you know, it's, it's a 0.2% or whatever, point, whatever percent, really small chance that that would happen from trying a food, but you know, maybe that could happen. I don't know. And just accepting that and then accepting that more than likely that won't happen. And there's other options that could happen and taking the risk. And there are, there are scenarios too, that you probably can't even think of. Right. 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 I don't like just to go with the absurd, because I think my brain likes to go there anyway. Um, 
you know, like option number one, you eat the food, it feeds the SIBO, it feeds the candida, you never recover, right? <laughs> the doom and gloom. Right, right. Worst case scenario, you feed the SIBO, it comes back, it, you never get rid of it. End of story. Uh, the probable is either that you have a little bit of bloating or a little bit of funny poops for like a day, and then it's a little hiccup and you get over it easily. No harm, no foul. Um, also probable is that you try the food and it goes totally well, and then you get to eat that food. There's there's an infinite number of possibilities of things that could happen. You could bite into that apple. Let's just use an apple. You could bite into that apple and then, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger could knock on your door and you open the door and you have the apple in your hand and you're eating the first bite of the apple. You open the door and Arnold Schwarzenegger is like, I feel obligated to do the accent, but oh my I can but I'm going to try. Oh my God. You have been entered into our apple eating contest. Here's your check for $10 million. I'm so proud of you. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger gives you a hug and leaves and you have a check for $10 million. I'm not saying that this is probable. All right. Right. But again, the point is there are an infinite number of possibilities with every action and every decision we make. And who's to say which one's going to play out? When I eat my next apple, I'm hoping and praying Arnold Schwarzenegger comes through my door and gives me a check for $10 million. Right. I don't know if it's probable, but every time I eat an apple now, I'm going to think of this. Right. But anyway, just again, to go with the absurd yeah. and to just point out there are so many possibilities. And again, like your brain just tends tends to focus on the worst case scenario version right. of that. But that's one of, of a gazillion different possibilities that are ahead. Right. Probable doesn't equal po- or possible doesn't equal probable. Yeah. Yeah, and, that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, it is so interesting. And the more you focus on the the unlikely but possible uh, option, the more intense the fear and the anxiety becomes. So well, th- and, again, this, and it feels much more probable right. the more you focus on it. Right, exactly. So it's just such a tricky game. Um, See, and... and- Sorry, I, I'm just going to interrupt you one more time. See, now we're almost getting into manifestation kind of stuff. So again, Ooh. we're going real woo. But I feel like we need, if we have a woo moment, we need like a theme song or something for like woo woo corner or something. I already, <laughs> you work on the theme song. I already did my best Arnold Schwarzenegger impression for you this episode. So I feel like I'm tapped out. Okay. For yeah, that was things, actually, I, I was like very, woo corner. I was very impressed with your Thank Arnold. You. Thank Schwarzenegger. You. I, that was, that was unexpected, I I but very on pleasant, honestly. Yes. I, I, I'm pretty proud of that moment. But uh, shoot, what was I just going to say, though? Woo. Oh, so we were saying that focusing on the worst case scenario makes it feel more mm. real and yeah. more probable than it actually is. And we're kind of loosely getting into manifestation now. If you keep thinking about that scenario... Yeah. And you keep assuming that it's going to happen. Then when you do get the guts to try the apple or the broccoli or the whatever, you might have brought that into existence by hyper-focusing on it so much. But that well, is like exactly the hyper- why 
I'm going to think of Arnold Schwarzenegger bringing me a check for $10 million. I'm going to think about that scenario every day for the rest of my life until it happens. Because I'm going to manifest that into happening. Right. Well, it becomes about the hypervigilance then. So like, okay, you're freaked out to eat something and you're looking for every symptom. This is why I try to avoid to an extent. Sometimes symptom tracking can be really helpful. So I'm not against this totally but for people that tend to be hyper vigilant or uh hyper focused on reactions i would not track i would definitely avoid tracking because if you're looking for symptoms you will find them (laughs) so yeah um yeah it's 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 so interesting and that's another thing too from a short and long-term standpoint if you're adding foods in you might have some short-term bumps that you're going to hit so that you can get to the long-term goals that you're trying to reach. And this is also something to, they talk about this. I feel like I've mentioned this in a past podcast episode, but there is a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, and he talks about the Valley of Disappointment. And this is something that I believe prevents a lot of people from focusing on long-term goals because usually anytime you're implementing something that's more long-term focused, meaning that you're not going to get, you're not going to get immediate results. There can be this valley of disappointment. Maybe you tried meditation for two weeks and you're thinking, I don't know, or you tried walking and you're not noticing immediate benefits after a week of doing it. That's called the Valley of Disappointment. You have to do something long enough to create long-term, like more physiological changes to see the benefits across maybe a number of months before giving up. So I do believe that there's a lot of these things we've been talking about where people will try something for a period of time and not get immediate results and they throw in the towel a bit too early. So that's something to think about too. Um, And in the context of food intro, it's really prominent with some of the clients we work with where they try food and maybe there is like a two to four week period where their guts shifting a lot and they're adding different foods in and they're a little bit more bloated and they have more gas and their stools changing. That might be the Valley of disappointment that you have to get through. But if you're so freaked out at the second, the twinge of the bloating coming back, um, then you're never going to get to the hill. The other side. Yeah. You're never going to get, does he have a name for what's on the other side? No, I don't think so. Oh, then we need to name it right here and now. Okay, so it's yeah. going to be a hill or a mountain, first okay, of all, yep. presumably. So what are we going to call it? Is it a hill? Let's let's go big or go home. It's a mountain. It's yeah. Magnificent Mountain. Yes. Okay, so you have to go through the Valley of Disappointment to get to Magnificent Mountain. But if the mm-hmm. valley freaks you out too bad and you turn around, you're never going to get to Magnificent Mountain. Right. Is is what you're trying to say. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good point with food intro. And again, I'm going to point out the hypocrisy in this world. Uh, and, and then I'm going to laugh at myself for a second, just to make the point that we're all human and we're, we're, we're trying to approach this from a place of love. We're also joking around and poking fun at you guys to keep it lighthearted, but it, we're, we've done we're I've done help. all this stuff that I'm talking about too yeah so it, and like I I'm currently this... doing some of it even and I'll share that in a second but 
you know, we all have a lot of shared human brain lesions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's not that we're sitting on some pedestal saying like, oh, we never have feared. We're never making short term decisions. (laughs) I'm only thinking about 52 years in the future. (laughs) Aren't we great? Like, that's not where we're coming from. Um, And I, I got sidetracked with my own little theatrical thing that I just did. And I lost track of the thing I was going to share. What were you saying before? Oh, the valley of disappointment and the mountain, magnificent mountain. Um, the hypocrisy is how many times have you heard people say that they have a die off reaction and they just need to push through the die off reaction because they know they're going to feel better on the other side of it. Right. So people are willing to do that for antimicrobials. You're willing to go through the valley of disappointment or the flare up in symptoms because you have the promise of a mountain on Mm. the other side. Right. If you're willing to do it for antimicrobials, why the heck won't you do it for the food introduction when you eat a serving or two or three of guacamole and then Mm. you freak out and you like restrict your diet even harder? Again, like that's a a wee bit hypocritical in my opinion. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It definitely is. I, I know it's, Again, the the marketing pitch is so strong for some of the short-term solutions, and it's less work. That's the other thing. It's just hard. It's hard to change habits. Anything that you, if you're, every, I feel like most people that I work with have an area that needs work. Everyone has their weak point. <laughs> whether it's sleep or diet or movement or stress management, usually of those four, at least one needs a lot of work when I work with clients, maybe multiple areas. Maybe someone's doing pretty well lifestyle-wise, but their diet just needs tweaking. But usually most of my clients need some degree of tweaking in those areas, and it's not hard. It could be obvious and simple if, you hate your job, that that could be affecting things, but it's not an easy fix. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm moving away from my mic again. I'm turning back. I did learning that. (laughs) I'm learning. Again, I need to have some sort of shocker or a buzzer that I saw me moving away and you were, um, (laughs) poor Bixmaster Mike is going to have to tackle that one. But yeah, it's, None of these things are easy. That's the other thing. It's hard to change habits. Taking it's much pills e- is right. great. Right. It is great because it's so easy. Getting your ass to the yoga studio, doing, doing yoga three times a week, or actually working on your toxic relationships, or setting boundaries with people when you've never set a boundary in your damn life. <laughs> those are hard. Right. But right. That's, or like, you know, eating something that you haven't eaten in a while. That can be hard. That could be really scary. Um, Even I have a student right now in FODMAP Freedom that I'm kind of gradually working on in the Q&As. I think she has a lot of like nutrition, dogmatic nutrition thinking. Yeah, She thinks that grains are bad. She thinks that meat is just intrinsically unhealthy and bad and awful and evil. And I'm, I'm kind of gradually chipping away at that. Um, I'm trying to be gentle and like a human about it. And I'm not coming in with a wagging finger saying like, everything you believe is wrong. But also I would love to do that. Um, 
I forget where I was going with that point. But can I share just uh, I mentioned before, let's laugh at me for a second. And I think I shared this in a moderately recent episode, but I'm going to bring it up again. So again, I don't I don't want you to think that we are sitting from this magical throne on top of Magical Mountain or whatever it was that I named it. And we're just like, ha ha ha, we are like Zen Buddhist monks who only think in long term strategy terms and we are in perfect health and perfect homeostasis with our environment. Um, I shared again, I think a couple episodes ago, that I would like to take off just a couple pounds, nothing crazy, like five, maybe 10 tops pounds. I've just turned into a little bit more of a bump on a log than I would appreciate. And I know a lot of it is movement focused. My nutrition is pretty rock solid, but I just, I need to move more. And I kid you not, before our recent move, I was getting into the habit of exercising and I was super proud of myself. I kid you not though, I was in Disappointment Valley because I worked out for like a week and then I got on the scale and was like, oh man, like not even a smidge. And then I, I worked out for another week. And I got on the scale and was like, oh, man, not even a little bit. But that's absurd, right? right? I worked out for a week or two, and I was expecting to see some sort of shift in the number on the scale. I know that that's dumb and that that's not how it works. And I still did it anyway, because, again, we have shared human brain lesions that all of us have. We're just silly gooses, every single one of us. And, you know, it's just like acknowledging that that's something that we all share and and taking the time to acknowledge it and zoom out, I think, is really helpful. Again, I, I did it and I felt that pang of disappointment. But then almost immediately, I laughed at myself and was like, ah, I'm doing the thing that I tell people not to do all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, brain lesions. And I just kind of moved on with my life. And I knew deep in my heart of hearts, I knew, Nikki, you just you have to like. You have to keep up with it for more than a week or two. In a couple of months, then you'll see the needle move on the scale. But it's not going to be an overnight success story here. And it cracks me up, too, because sometimes the opposite happens where someone will have an immediate loss. And usually it's because they've cut too many calories. They've cut a bunch of calories out, and then it's like they lose like five pounds in a week. Probably a lot of it's water weight. You know, it's not even true weight. And then it's like they do another week and they only lost like a pound. And then they're like, uh, that's not good. And then they go another week and they have a week that they didn't lose anything. Or they gained a pound. Right. And then it's like, ah, screw it. And then everything goes to shit. Um, In this version of the metaphor, I would say they had, uh, they went over instant gratification mound. I'm not even going to say it's a hill, yeah. but like the losing five pounds immediately, that is instant gratification mound. Then they hit Valley of Disappointment and then they never got to Magnificent Mound. Right. 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 They right. they had a little whoop and they got all excited and then, oh. Well, and sucks. there's a lot of that in the gut health space too, where maybe you did sure. have success with antimicrobials and it feels like that's the answer. So you keep going back and realizing you're getting less efficacy each time, which is super common with my clients and I'm sure your clients too, where if they do get success with herbals or antibiotics, it's 
the usually the first couple times and then it's way less helpful over yeah. time um so i do think that that can trip people up too because they feel like the promise was fulfilled somewhat but only short term well it's it's like in their mind they proved the efficacy of that mm. treatment right Right. Antimicrobials work. I proved it because the antimicrobial made me feel better. Right. And similarly, too, with food. If you feel good when you cut out a food or a couple of foods, you proved in your mind, you proved that cutting out foods works for you. Right. So naturally, you're going to want to go that direction because in your mind, you already it's already a proven strategy. Right. So you'd be a fool not to try it again at some yeah. point. But again, mm-hmm. it's if you do it again and again and again and again, and you're getting less and less and less and less and less benefit when you're doing this repeatedly, then again, at some point, you have to step back and go, mm, maybe I need a new direction or maybe I just need to shift focus somehow. Um, yeah. And and again, I think just zooming out and identifying uh, like the list that I proposed in the beginning of the episode, zoom out and just label how many things are directly gut focused versus anything else and kind of tally them up and see where your emphasis is being placed. Similarly, you could add another column to that page and you could just label short or long right? For every single intervention, every single pill and thing that you're doing, labeling it as, okay, is this a short or a long-term strategy? And then counting them up and seeing, oh, out of the, you know, 18 things that I'm doing, 14 of them are short-term and 15 of them are gut-directed, like directly gut-directed, right? So those are kind of flags for you to pay attention and to try to shift gears and, and kind of zoom out again. Um, Another way of thinking that this, this was the point that I was going to make a fair while ago. And then we just got talking about other good juicy stuff and I didn't get a chance to share it. Uh, You've, you've seen at least a few episodes of the good place, right? Yes. Okay. I, I had a vague recollection that I think Armand has seen the whole show, but you've only seen a few episodes. Side note, I need to give you this as a homework assignment because it's so good. But you know of Janet, right? Is that the... She's like the Alexa, almost, okay, of that yeah, world. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So for those of you who haven't seen the show, first of all, run out and watch it immediately. It's excellent. It's my favorite show. But B... Um, the good place is essentially heaven and the bad place is hell. And you're following these humans in their afterlife. And in the afterlife, they have a Janet and Janet is an anthropomorphized version, kind of like Alexa. Like you just Mm. say Janet and she pops out of nowhere and you could ask her to get you anything you want, or you could ask her a question and she knows all the answers for everything in the universe. Right. Mm. So you could ask her, Janet, give me, Give me a pizza that is a mile wide, topped with unicorn dust and avocado, and she will produce it for you, like, instantly. Right. Um, or you could ask her, who did Galileo date before he died? I don't know. Um, you get the idea. <laughs> so uh, 
at the very end of the show, I'm not going to give away anything, um, but at the very, very end of the show, uh, they they mentioned something and Janet shares that she doesn't experience time the same way the humans do. And she explained that she's kind of living all moments all at once. So mm. um, it's just that she doesn't have a concept of past, present and future so much. It's like she's right. living all of the moments all at once. So another very specific niche way that you could think of this is if Janet had IBS or SIBO or Candida or whatever, what, and she has no concept of time and she does not experience time the same way we do. So to her, it doesn't matter if she feels better tomorrow versus five years from now. It's all the same to her. What would Janet do to set herself up for success? Would she be doing the obliterating with antimicrobials and getting every new probiotic that you see an Instagram ad for. And it would still be what WWJD. It would be. What would Janet do? That's right. Yes. I like that. Yes. So maybe uh, get yourself one of those snazzy bracelets and remember (laughs) what would Janet do? Yeah. It's an interesting analogy. I, one thing too, to be careful of is after you listen to this episode, don't just urgently focus on long-term goals either because you can frantically then overcompensate and say, well, I have to address stress. I got to address sleep and and get all in a tizzy too with that. So, um, you know, try to do things bit by bit. So maybe focus on one thing first. If you feel like you can tackle a couple things at once, that's fine too. But if you feel like you're focusing in this like you feel like you're operating in the same gear as you were with the short term solutions, it still might be a bit problematic. So just know that this might take time and you can implement things in a manner where you're going to find success. Because if you're throwing too much at yourself too, it, it will also lead to probably disappointment because habits are hard. So if you can get a habit online to start and then weave in other things because once you establish a habit, it's easier to, to continue doing it. So probably the first three to four weeks of establishing a habit is the hardest. So getting to bed at a certain time and waking up at a certain time and really prioritizing sleep, maybe spend three weeks doing that and feel very solid and it's easier than to add something else in. So then it's easier to do a little bit of stress management Or you could do it a different way by maybe focusing a little bit on sleep if that needs a little tweak and a little tweak on something else. But if you're biting off too much, if you're biting off too more than you can chew, um, that might not be great either. Um, Also, one thing from that book, uh, Atomic Habits, that I like a lot is he recommends something called habit stacking, meaning if you already have an established habit that you do every day. So let's say you shower every day in the morning. That's something that's automatic. If you can pair that habit with a new habit, it tends to help with efficacy of establishing that habit. So if you know you're going to brush your teeth at a certain time and you start pairing right before you brush your teeth, you do breath work or something 
or I don't know, something else. Um, but if you pair a habit that's already established with a new habit, you have better chance of sticking to that habit. Um, so that's something to think about also having stuff out. So if you want to get into walking or something, set your running shoes out the day before or your walking shoes out the day before. I find that helps a ton. Right. If I leave a yoga mat on the floor in my office, laid out, not even rolled up. If I leave it out, I'm so much more likely to get on it and actually do some stretching. Right. Similarly, um, this, you would have seen this for all of season one, pretty much. But I always had a camera covered up with like a tie dye cloth. Yeah, I always had all of my camera equipment, all of my lighting equipment, the big old tripod, I always left that set up in the middle of my room. Because I noticed with my YouTubing, if I leave everything set up, and the only thing I have to do is take the dust cover off my camera and turn on the lights. If it's that easy, I could be really good about one YouTube video every week. Right. If I fold up the tripods and I put the camera away and I put the umbrella lights away, if I pack up stuff even a little bit more, I'm much less likely to record my YouTube videos. So yeah, um, that's a really good one too. Leave your yeah. stuff out. Leave your your shoes out or... If you want a journal, like put your journal yeah. somewhere you can see it. If Even having sometimes post-it notes um, somewhere just as a reminder um, can be helpful. Again, don't get obsessive with it. But if you want to put like a post-it note on your computer as a reminder to do Reminders something. Reminder on your phone. Right, reminder on your too. phone, that kind of stuff, I think could be helpful too. Yeah. I think though, similarly... Um, to piggyback off of your point, I like how you described it. If you're if you're trying to do the long-term stuff in the same gear as you were with the short-term stuff, um, again, if you're approaching it from that frantic or obsessive place of like, oh my god, I have to, I have to nail down all these things now. Oh my god, it's. I think that it's that energy that's biting you in the butt the worst, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> And it might not much matter if you're if you're coming at it with that energy, but you're taking a probiotic versus getting really militant about your sleep. It's it's the rigidity, and it's mm. the like frantic anxiousness that we're talking about that really comes around and gets you. So well, just it, be mindful of of your approach there. Yeah, it's still. I almost think it's still rooted in this idea that you have to be better tomorrow Mm -hmm. because there's still a desperate frantic nature of getting all your ducks in a row. Um, So it's still this gear of, I need to get everything aligned and perfect to today. So tomorrow I'll be better. But even that, that's not realistic either. So it's operating in this um, from a mindset that that's still possible. I, I don't know. It, it's, you almost want to shift your mindset to begin with to a long-term mindset versus coming at long-term strategies with the short-term mindset. Well, and I think the expression plan for the worst, hope for the best comes to mind, right? Yeah. So if, if you can 
kind of resign yourself to the idea that you, you'll feel better, but not immediately. Right. Right. You're, if you resign yourself to the idea that you will feel better in two years and you can just kind of sit with that and deal with the value of disappointment and be like, Oh, Oh, that really sucks. I want to feel better sooner than that. But if you can get through that initial sucktitude and resign yourself to that possibility, then as you implement things and you're able to move through the journey with more ease and less franticness, um, you might find that you're pleasantly surprised. In planning for the worst, quote unquote, in, in this case, if you plan on, all right, I'm just going to feel better in, in two years or five years from now, just releasing that and, and allowing yourself to come to that conclusion, you might find that you feel better a lot quicker, you know, a month from now. And right. it might be that some of that is directly due to the fact that you release that urgency. And some of it is because in releasing that urgency, you were able to focus on the things that actually matter. But again, plan for the worst, hope for the best, I think is a reasonable strategy. Right. I almost think the ultimate exposure for someone that's in that urgent mindset. And there, this was very helpful for me at times to just take a break from doing anything mm-hmm. could be potentially helpful. So spending a month of just maybe time connecting with things you've neglected, whether that's like relationships or passions or hobbies. Yeah. Um, and just taking a breather now, if that feels insane to you, you also might be the person that may need that the most. So yeah. it, it's it's challenging, but taking a break, a gut health break of doing anything extra, maybe you stick with some things that generally keep symptoms under better control, but anything active, um, taking like a month off, I feel can be valuable for some people um, so that you can regroup and establish your baseline again and just recharge a bit before doing anything else. And it takes you out of that urgency, urgent type state just to allow you to chill and sit. It's the ultimate exposure. Right. Right. And I, I think we did, we talked about this in a recent episode, I think, was it the free or cheap episode, maybe where we talked about the idea of just taking a break and doing nothing new, right for a while. And, and I think also, it's good to point out here, if you want to take a breather, take a break for a month or two. If there is something that you know, for sure is helping you, you could keep that in, right. But then anything where you're kind of on the fence, or you think it helps, but only a smidgen, those are the things I would say chop out for for that month. So, you know, sometimes people will be like, OMG, this probiotic was the most miraculous probiotic I ever tried in my life. And usually this comes up when I recommend stool testing and, and they ask me, do I have to discontinue the probiotic for the stool testing? Because right. I really, really don't want to go off of it. If you love something that much or if it's helped you that profoundly, you could continue something like that through this break that we're proposing. But yeah, I find that most people 
the absolute majority of their supplements and pills and potions, like 90, 95% of their pills and potions, when I actually ask them if it's helping, they'll be like, I don't know. Or they'll say, yeah, a bit. Right. Or, or they, they pause for an abnormally long period of time because they're thinking about it because they're really not sure. If there's anything like that where you're not completely, utterly convinced that it's helping you, then those are the things that you take a break from if you do take a break, right. as a side note. Um, but yeah, I think that this this has been a really good episode, if I Whoa. do say so myself, for on both of our parts. Uh, I really hope everybody listens to the full hour and a half I episode. This was a long one. Uh, I have one thing to briefly discuss and a question for my dear my dear co-host before we wrap up i remembered to ask you this question when it was too late and we had already stopped filming our last episode which by the way i did decide to title breaking up with sibo um in that episode i mentioned the youtube videos that i did about the deep dive on the literature with sibo breath testing uh for what it's worth, two of them have posted as of the recording of this episode. The next one goes live tomorrow. Um, the lactolo- false positives with lactulose got kind of a normal amount of views. Funny enough, the false positives with glucose video is performing very poorly. <laughs> really? As far as like my YouTube stats go. Um, and I don't always pay super close attention, but YouTube does this thing on my app where it shows you the number of views and the average duration and the click-through rate. And it compares it to your average for a video that's been out for the same amount of time. Yeah. Very few people are interested in the false positives of glucose video. I will be very curious when the third one posts the one of false negatives with glucose. Mm -hmm. It'll be curious to see if anybody clicks on that one, because (laughs) right now, the second video in this series is kind of bombing a little bit. Uh, it was still worth it. I would do it again and again, absolutely, because I would rather bring you the truth and I would rather bring you accurate information than play into YouTube's algorithm game. But yeah, fascinating. But my question, dear Amy, was knowing what we know now and knowing what we talked about in the last episode with the f- high rates of false positives on SIBO breath testing. Do you think you really had SIBO? Ooh. Like bona fide, honest Ooh. to goodness, increased quantity, bacterial overgrowth. Do you think you had SIBO or do you think that yours was more of like dysbiosis, IBS, poor motility, poor digestion kind of stuff? Oh, I probably did not have SIBO is my, is my, is my, my guess. I mean, I think... In terms of my SIBO clients that I work with, my SIBO clients that have been diagnosed, I was very much along the same lines. I think from my standpoint, I had all the symptoms, the bloating, the discomfort, the the IBS symptoms. I think mine was very much dysbiosis driven um, compared to anything else. So yeah, I don't know. I, I would say no if I had to put money on it. Um, I was more methane dominant too. And like, even, even, I I mean, I haven't looked at my tests in a while. I can't remember exactly where I was falling, but you know, I feel like it was even like 
I'd be curious to pull them back up and see where my levels were exactly and when my ri- when the rise was in my methane. Um, but I worked with multiple providers that diagnosed me with SIBO. So it's, it's yeah. interesting. It, it's so funny too, because, you know, I feel like no matter what the test would have shown, the providers would have still said it's SIBO. It's just a false negative. It's just a false positive or a false negative. Yeah. Well, so that's the, that's the annoying, sad part about the whole situation is I think we're learning so much more about what causes symptoms of bloating um, for the majority of people. Now, I think there is true cases of outright SIBO, but I do think we're overdiagnosing it for sure. Yeah, I um, agree. I think I had SIMDA, as we've said. That's th- right. As we've... <laughs> Quitting that term. <laughs> Used before small intestinal or s- small, yeah. is it SIMDA? Yeah. Sol- yeah, small simda. intestinal mi- microbiota. Microbi- microbial Microbial dysbiosis. dysbiosis. Okay, yeah. I and think that I opens the door for archaea and yeast. Right. And maybe viruses. Right. Who knows? We don't know jack right. shit about the virome. That's a, right. whole, oh, that's a whole nother episode once we actually get some research on that and read up on that a bit. Yeah. Um, the viral microbiome. That'll, that'll have to be a very deep PubMed deep dive though, because I know almost nothing about the virome at this point. Um, so that'll have to be a topic for another day, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think that this was a juicy one. I hope that our viewers feel the same way. Um, as always, guys, feel free to comment on YouTube, like, subscribe, etc. Uh, if you're on a podcasting app like Apple or Spotify, we would deeply appreciate a five-star review. And we will see you right back here in the next rip episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. So until then, take care, and we'll see you next Monday.